Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. This episode is a companion piece to episode 12 from a while back, where we covered Hallowed Ground by the band Skinyard on one of the classic records episodes that Randy and I do. I was able to sit down with Daniel House, founding member, bassist, CEO of CZ Records, and a guy that also worked at Sub Pop for a period of time. And uh, we talk about the formation of the band, we talk about CZ Records, and we talk about the formation of that legendary Northwest heavy rock scene from the late 80s and early 90s. A while back, um, we did a classic records uh, skin yard hallowed ground episode. And that's how you and I uh, got in touch. And I, that was really yes. cool that you heard that. I don't even remember how I think, I think I just, you know, I think I have notifications that come in by email, every uh, Google notifications. And suddenly this thing popped in. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> listen to it. And I'm like, this is really cool. Yeah. So Skinyard, uh, CZ Records. Sure, go ahead. Can I can I say this is that was really fucking cool, or do I have to say this is cool? Oh no, man, we're uh, we're street level here, man. This is for the people, okay, and we can uh, <laughs> curse and say all sort blasphemy, all that stuff's okay, on good. the table. So I'm, yeah, I'm all in for blasphemy. Right on, me too. <laughs> um, so Skinyard, CZ Records, and Sub Pop. There's a lot to talk yeah. about, and I got to be honest, okay. man. I don't even know where to start, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Skinyard, which seems to okay. be the uh, the beginning of the story, I guess. To a large degree, I would say that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. Actually, while well, Skinyard was before Sub Pop, and it was before CZ, so yeah, yeah. And uh, that band, for those of you out there who um, who missed the Classic Records episode where Randy and I covered Hallowed, Hallowed Ground. Please go back and listen to that because it's a possibility that you might not be familiar with that particular record or this particular band. But I will uh, go as far as to say that Skinyard was one of the bands that if you were to map out a family tree of uh, that late 80s, early, early 90s uh, Northwest music scene that gave us Soundgarden, you know, the Melvins, Nirvana, uh, all those bands that they play a very big part in the formation of that sound and that that whole like uh, like vibe that was going on in that part of the country. Um, yeah, the mention the bands you just mentioned were basically you know most of the earliest bands from that scene. Um, you know, it was Skinyard and Malfunction and Green River, uh, Melvins. You know, a couple more. You you men were actually the one band that was sort of established and around at that time but they didn't they didn't quite fit with sort of what was beginning to to bubble up from within the scene uh but they, they were certainly the 
the uh, the elder statesman of the of the you know harder Seattle underground. Yeah, just to give you a little background on myself, I lived in Bellingham, Washington for about a year in the early 90s. I would say it was around 1992. And um, during that period of time, uh, everyone I ran into that was into music or playing, you know, a certain type of music that I was interested in, at least, was talking about Skinyard. And uh, they were like, you know, me being from the East Coast and not really being that familiar with any of that stuff because uh 91 92 uh bands like the melvins green river um you know mother love bone all all those bands we were talking about were still really below the um the sort of radar of a lot of people on the east coast Uh and everyone's like oh yeah you 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 play guitar you like uh heavy rock um check out skin yard and uh one of the things that I really dug about the band was, yeah, definitely there was like this this heavy rock thing. There was like, a, you can tell you guys were into punk. And um, especially on Hallowed Ground, I feel like there was like a, this real dark, very, very dark vibe. Skinner was a band who had a lot of influences sort of from the different, you know, individual members of the band. Um, and we I, I think to some degree we sort of wore those influences on our sleeve a little bit anyway. Um, and, and we were, I felt like most of the other bands that were around at the time were very uh, specifically this thing or that thing. And, and we were this band that sort of brought in a lot of different things. So, so I always felt like we kind of stood a little bit apart from just sort of the, that scene in general. We, we shared a lot of the same aesthetics in terms of, you know, kind of dark, heavy, kind of, we were very groove oriented, you know, but very thick, very, you know, I mean, one of the things about that whole scene was, you know, it was, it was all about heavy guitar rock and it was very much a response against kind of the real slick, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood Boulevard kind of scene that had largely dominated kind of the, the rock airwaves in the late eighties bands like, you know, Poison and all of, all of those bands. And, and this was kind of a lashback against that kind of slickness, you know, and, and more towards just something that was more, uh, I, I suppose, raw and, and probably a little more um, just kind of primal, I suppose. Now, the, the band started in the 80s. I think you guys formed. Yeah. Well, I should ask you, actually, instead of me telling you when the band formed. Well, the, the band started in uh, effectively 1985. Uh, our very, very first show actually was um, was 1985 in June. Uh, we opened for the, the You Men Leave Home show, which back then was a big deal because we didn't have any bands that, you know, that were actually going on tour. This was like, and, and, and from all accounts, it was kind of a disastrous tour from them. But it was still a big deal. Like, oh, my God, the You Men are leaving home. They're, they're going on tour. Holy shit. And, uh, you know, we were able to secure... A position on that bill that was that was our very first bill and you know that was kind of like oh man that's kind of a big to do um you know we were unknown at that point but we you know matt cameron at that point was our drummer uh, this is before he was in skin yard uh, before he was in Soundgarden, before he was in pearl jam you know he was our first drummer for about the first year and also uh jack and dino the famous record producer was was in the band too. Yes, 
Yes, he was. But but you know, at that point in '85, he was largely unknown. He wasn't. You know, he had started recording a lot of these bands, but just just started. Um, you know, that happened very organically. But yeah, Jack did end up recording. You know, the first Soundgarden, um, the first uh, the first. Well, actually, it wasn't the first album, but the first Soundgarden and the first Nirvana record was done by Jack. I mean, I, I think to date he probably has literally over 600 records to, you know, to his resume. Um, and then it goes, you know, it's it's endless. I mean, he's one of, one of the best Quest for Fire records he did. Um, he's worked for this band that few people have ever heard. It's probably the biggest hard rock band in Brazil. They're called Titas. Um you know, they can literally sell out 50,000 seat arenas, but specifically in Brazil, because they actually speak in Portuguese, which I think is kind of fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So the original lineup of the band was you, Jack and Dino, uh, Ben McMillan and Matt Cameron, uh -huh. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And ben, ben, of course, later went on to form Grunt Truck. Yeah. Um, though, though, you know, to be fair, Grunt Truck actually overlapped with Skin Yard. It started while Skinyard was still active, and then once Skinyard finally broke up, you know, Ben just continued with 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 Grunge Rock. And that uh, featured uh, some guys that played in the Accused, I believe, too. Right? Uh, well, it featured specifically Tommy from the Accused, and then the, the drummer of that band was Scott, who was our second drummer, who was um, also the drummer that was on the record that you mentioned, uh, Hallowed Ground. So Scott was on our second. And our third record, Hollow Ground being our second, and Fist Size Chunks uh, being our third record. And then in, it was actually during that tour, we did a tour before we recorded Fist Size Chunks after Hollow Ground. It was during that tour that the earliest seeds of uh, Grunt Truck started to happen between Ben and Scott. Like when I first heard actually all of those bands from that time period, like when I, you know, a young man, I just rolled up to Bellingham, Washington. Um, you know, I was, I was discovering all these bands and Skin Yard was like probably my favorite band out of all the bands that I discovered around that time. You know, I'm, I'm uh, in my early 20s. Uh, you know, I, I grew up listening to Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Um, when I was like in my early teens, I discovered the Ramones, uh -huh. Black, Black Flag, uh, you know, Flipper, uh, bands like that. And when I heard Skin Yard, it was almost like the perfect sort of crossing of all of those bands into this sound, which, as you mentioned earlier, was still a uh, reaction to the slickness of maybe what was going on with, like, you know, bands like Poison, like you mentioned, you know, Motley Crue and this kind of thing. Right. Yet there was still, like, a very definitive um, nod to guitar-based rock, like heavy rock. So Absolutely. Were, were you guys, you know, you know, it's the thing is, what came first, punk or hard rock with you guys? Or were you into uh, punk uh, at all? I think it, I, I don't think that's a, that's a binary question. Um, because I think it, as I mentioned earlier, um, the individual, the individual members of the band really brought in a lot of their own influences. So for instance, when Scott was a drummer in the band, he was probably into a lot more hardcore and a lot more punk. And so some of that came through on those couple of records with him. Um, but, you know, Jack was into certain 
when I say Jack, I mean Mike, Jack and Dino. Some people call him Mike, some people call him Jack. But Jack and Dino, you know, he was a little bit older and he probably came in with a a, a larger uh, pot of, of classic 70s hard rock. And I probably came in with more of the, I probably had more of a punk influence, but also a lot more of the sort of goth influence, you know, um, a lot of the bands in the 80s that really influenced me, for instance, were bands like Killing Joke and, as you mentioned, Bauhaus and even Susie and the Banshees and, you know, a lot of these kind of darker, hypnotic, uh, kind of heavy bands, you know. And Jack was probably brought in more classic stuff that was maybe more blues-based, things like Rory Gallagher and uh, uh, Groundhogs, if your fans are familiar with Tony Fee and the, and the Mighty Groundhogs. Um, but everybody kind of brought in different stuff, you know, and then the other thing that's also relevant is in those early to mid eighties years in Seattle, it was a pretty small scene and everybody in all the bands basically knew each other and everybody in all the bands basically supported each other and went to each other's shows. And, you know, it was an incredibly fertile time. There was a lot of people, a lot of bands creating a lot of really cool, exciting stuff most of it heavy not all um but i i have to believe that we also to some certain degree kind of cross-pollinated and influence each other as well if that makes sense no, so, totally you know makes sense totally yeah and i mean if i'm looking you know if i'm looking at just just as as an example i so, so I, I i think i mentioned to you that i'm working on the skin yard book and i've i've fairly recently completed a, a pretty much complete gig list from 85 through 91. And just as a, for instance, I'm looking, I'm looking at a, at a bill from October of 85, you know, Green River, Room 9, who you may not know, Soundgarden, Skin Yard. Um, you know, we played at the UMEN New Year's Eve of that same year. You know, later the next year, we're playing shows with Green River, Bundle of Hiss, My Eye. Um, again, you know, we played a lot of shows with, with Soundgarden over the early years um, because, you know, back then Soundgarden was playing at the same small clubs that we were. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I think in like 87, we played with Faith No More, you know, and I think in 88, we played with like Flaming Lips. And um, so, you know, at these times when these bands were certainly in the midst of, of their ascent, but, but still club bands, not yet arena rock bands, which, you know, for some people might be kind of like, what, wait, what, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, it's kind of a fun thing to brag about a little bit. Uh, not that I try to be a braggart, but you know, Nirvana opened for skin yard on four different occasions. Um, you know, one of my favorite posters is this, old poster from 1988, which says Skin Yard, Coffin Break, and Nirvana. And actually, that was in Bellingham. So, you know, Nirvana opened for us in Coffin Break in November of 88. People are like, no, they didn't. I'm like, yeah, they did. Because Nirvana started as, you know, tiny little small band, and nobody knew that they were going to become, you know, the the absolute force of nature that they became. You know, so, so you know, it's, it just kind of gives you some perspective on kind of what the scene looked like in those early and mid eighties, you know, completely different. Right. What is this book? Like what's the, the form of this book that you're, you're working on right now? Um, well, the book is, um, 
it's basically a skin yard oral history. Um, but I don't know if you've read any of the other sort of grunge Seattle oral history books. <clears throat> to, to me, those seem a little disjointed and just like lots and lots and lots of sound bites all kind of squeezed together. And I'm, I'm really trying to sort of get into more of the intimate details and more of the intimate history about skin yard. And, and, and maybe it's easier than doing that than it would be for trying to talk about an entire scene. Um, the other thing is those books are written by people that actually didn't live there. Right. And I'm, I'm speaking from having been on the side and, you know, having known all these people. So, you know, there's, you know, Bruce Pavitt and John Hummen from Sub Pop are, are, you know, have been interviewed and, you know, of course, everybody in the band and, you know, different members, different drummers. So, you know, we had effectively four drummers over the course of being a band. Um, you know, the first of which was, was Matt Cameron and the last of which was Barrett Martin. So they're all in the book. Um, Steve Turner from Mudhoney and Dan Peters from Mudhoney. I'm going to try to get, uh, try to get Mark Arm on there. Um, especially cause I knew he was not a fan of the band and I actually want, kind of want that dichotomy because I'm, I'm not looking for just like, you know, cheerleaders. I want to actually sort of tell the, the messy and sometimes, you know, not that complimentary story of this band, you know? Um, I just interviewed with Kate Yamamoto the other day. I'm supposed to be uh, interviewing with Garrett Shavlik of the Fluid shortly. Um, so when all said and done, it'll probably be 30 to 40 different interviews, and it'll be woven together uh, as a oral, his oral history, but also with a lot of my own uh, narrative kind of woven throughout to kind of set the stage. And then in places I might interject uh, with the book itself. Um, I also have a poster gallery in there and if I can do everything as I'd like to, I'd like to actually have a, uh, either a, a CD in there or like a digital download sort of a, a selection for people who may not know the band. You know, the band hasn't been a band for literally three decades or, or almost three decades. The last show the skin yard ever played, um, in Seattle was in July of 1991. The last show they ever played in the U.S. was in October of 91. And the last show they ever played was in November of 91. And that was that was on tour in Europe. But the final record came out, uh, came out either 91 or 92. So it was released posthumously. Um, so for all intents and purposes, as a as a live band, uh, the band was, you know, actually together as a, as an, as a unit through 91. And that was pretty much it. So it was, I mean, it was a damn good run for sure. No, definitely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, to me, uh, skin yard is uh, a household name. You know what I mean? It's like, I, you know, when I tour with my band, I play music when I'm driving and it's like, sure. You know, people are like, oh, who, who is this? I'm like, what do you mean, who shit. is this? It's Skin Yard. <laughs> like, why, why, the, why the fuck don't you know who this is? You know what I mean? And then, but people, everyone that in my band loves you guys. It's like, uh, that's great. Yeah, we're, we're into it, you know? And everyone that since over the last like 20 something years or whatever, 30 years that I played their, you know, the music for loves, loves the, the records. And uh, I'm really happy to hear that there's like this book coming out. However, it yes. seems like a daunting task to put together something like that. It's been, I've been working on it for two years so far. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it's something like, like that. Yeah. 
probably going to be at least another year before I have something ready to actually show to people. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, of oral histories and um, I feel like that particularly trying to weave together all these different accounts seems to be um, incredibly hard. Like I, I, and hard to pull off too. Yeah. I, I, I think so far that's, that's accurate, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, um, I think it's going to be, I, I really think it's going to be a great book. I think it's going to be a really interesting read and, um, you know, uh, and I also think it's going to be something that, I don't know, you know, there, there's so many books on so many big, you know, globally known bands, but I very often find books on smaller bands to be more interesting because there's something that actually more people can get into, especially people who have been in bands or want to be in bands. Cause you know, the vast majority of bands end up being rather small in terms of their historical relevance. Right. Absolutely. So it's something, so it's sort of more relatable in that, in that regard. Um, you know, when you're talking about bands about that, that have reached the level of rock stardom, uh, that seems, you know, when these people are suddenly, they're not people anymore. They're, they're icons. And so we view our icons in our society in such a, a different way than we do sort of, you know, our heroes that, you know, maybe, maybe got to open for somebody once in an arena, but ultimately, you know, we're mostly a club band or, you know, or maybe like they got to play like a 2000 seater. I, I, I used to say in the day that I always thought that the, the best level of success would have been to be like a band like King Crimson because, yeah. because they can consistently play to two to 3000 people. They all make a living. They've been making a living for decades and yet you can still largely go out on the street and remain semi-anonymous, but you've got a good living. Yeah. And you're and more connected actually with your fan base. You know, I remember I, mean, I saw Soundgarden so many times in clubs and everybody knew everybody and everybody in the club was probably friends with those guys. And then I remember the first time I actually went and saw them at an arena and it was just weird. It didn't, it didn't feel right to me because I'm like, this isn't, this isn't, who are these people? These aren't, yeah. these aren't their fans. They don't know. You know, it's that whole like, well, I would, they were my band first. But, you know, it's 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 a different experience because you don't have that intimacy that you get to have with a with this, you know, in a smaller venue. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, I still think that's the best way to see music is, you know, like 2000 is getting kind of big, but I can deal with that, you know. But I, I still to this day love seeing bands, you know, in venues that are under a thousand people, maybe other, you know, 500 people. It's great. You know, it's funny. It's only been like maybe within the last, I would say, between five and 10 years that I've actually enjoyed going to see these big, you know, rock shows. Uh, you know, I think when Sabbath had some of their reunions and then the Slayer farewell tour, like things like that, that is when I started really enjoying going to like large arena type shows. But I'm with you on the size of the venue. I like you know, I would prefer to see a band in a 500 cap room or, you know, maybe a sure. thousand, 1500, you know, cap room or something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I never, I never saw Nirvana again after they hit it big. I was just like, I don't need to, I know who they are. I know what they're about. You know, I love them as a band. I mean, but I, you know, 
I, I don't want to have that experience kind of taint my memories of having seen them, you know, two dozen times in small clubs yeah. where you can go hang out with Kurt afterwards and, you know, just shoot the shit and drink a beer. Now, around the time of, uh, of the, of skin yards existence, you became involved uh, with CZ records. Um, yes. And that label had existed prior to uh, skin yard. Correct. Okay. So, um, yeah. so how'd that come about? So <clears throat> originally, um, Chris Hansek and his then girlfriend, Cassell, uh, had started this little label called CZ records. Um, and I don't really, I, I don't ultimately know everything that inspired them to want to do this, but, but Chris had identified this small handful of bands in the scene that were kind of doing something that was different. Um, and I don't even, I, I have to be honest, I don't recall how we ended up having the good fortune of being um, on that comp, but you know, it's called Deep Six because there are six bands on the compilation, right? Uh, there's Human, Green River, Malfunction, Melvin's, Soundgarden, and Skinyard. Well, hold on a second. Before before you just gloss over the Deep Six comp, that's actually like a legendary compilation that came out. Yeah, and and it's no, uh, it you're is. like you're like oh yeah, you know they want to put together this comp, and I'm like well hold on a second, it's well, the Deep Six because comp. At the time, because <laughs> at the time that's what it was. They were just kind of they had no idea. You know, Chris had never done a label. He, he was a local engineer who had started this little studio. And, you know, I think I think his he kind of had this idea of putting it together and, and he was going to be the, the primary engineer for each of the songs. And then, and then each band on the record uh, got to have one person in the studio with Chris for like mixing and all that. And of course, in our case, you know, that was that was Jack and Dino. <clears throat> but but there was no sense at that time that this record would would be anything of any particular relevance. It was just going to be this cool record. I mean, you know, it was released in a limited edition of, I forget if it was 1000 or 2000. I want to say 2000, but I could be wrong. Um, and even then when it first came out, it, it was selling primarily only in Seattle. Like it was, it was not easy to get distributors to pick it up. It was not easy to get distributors to give a shit enough to actually try to sell it to stores around the country. Um, so it, it was this local quiet, it was this quiet little local record at first. Um, the second record that Chris put out was the first 45 by Melvin's. And it was, uh, it was six songs on a little seven inch. Um, and it was all recorded live to two track which is kind of amazing. Yeah. And this is when Melvins were a much faster, punkier band. They weren't, they weren't so thick and heavy and just punishing, you know, they were this, I mean, they were an intense band, but they were fast, which is kind of sort of hard to imagine. Um, and then after that, Chris was just like, dude, this is, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to be in the studio and record bands, you know, and he had most of the records were literally in boxes under his bed. And so he was going to end the label and I basically approached him and said, Hey dude, I have an idea. What do you think about basically giving me the label and I will continue. I'll buy the inventory from you and I will sell it off. But moving forward, I get to basically, 
own the label, make the decisions, release records. And what I what I ultimately was wanting was the opportunity to put out a record by Skinyard. And considering this was the only place where Skinyard had ever released anything, it seemed it seemed like a very kind of logical thing that CZ uh, Skinyard was on this Deep Six compilation on CZ Records, and then the debut record uh, would then come out on CZ. So that's what I did. And I spent several years actually selling through the Deep Six inventory and the Melvin's inventory. Um, and by the time I you know, had pretty much sold through that, I had probably released quite a few records by then. You know, I, I'd put out the first Skinyard record and the first Skinyard 45, um, but I'd put out stuff by like Coffin Break, Mm-hmm. back then um i'm trying to think here uh, it's hard to remember the gets <laughs> you got you put out a gets record uh, the, right it gets came later yeah but um you know there was there was a lot of stuff and and it was just a, it was just a hobby that's the thing it was just it was just basically um i was having fun i wasn't necessarily doing it for profit um but, you know, over time, it became more and more, I started actually breaking even at some point, you know, and then I started making money and, you know, I was basically signing local bands. I, I put out stuff by Coffin Break, by a little band called My Eye, another band called Vexed. A lot of it was pretty obscure stuff in today's history. Uh, but over time, you know, I started putting out stuff that kind of got more natural renown. Um one of the records I put out was the Hard to Believe Kiss Covers compilation, um, which had Melvin's on it, which had Nirvana on it, uh, a number of, a couple of, couple of Boston bands, a bunch of Australian bands, because it was originally licensed from Waterfront Records down in Australia. Um, I actually put out, I started putting out a few bands from different parts of the country, a band called Hullabaloo out of Boston. Yeah, I remember them, yeah. You know, dirty, noisy, grungy kind of careening, careless, dirty rock, fun stuff. And actually, I'm still really dear friends with uh, Sluggo, who's the main guy in that band. But I, I put out some bands, records by bands in Athens, Georgia, and in Philly, um, or, or was it Pittsburgh? can't remember now. Anyway, you know, ended up doing this for 15-some-odd years. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, it started. It started with... Uh, with Deep Six, which of course now is legendary. Um, but over time, I kind of built it into this label that uh, at its peak was probably number two in Seattle only to Sub Pop. And during that whole grunge explosion, it was a pretty great time to have a, a, a Seattle label putting out local indie, indie rock because, you know, bottom line, people were people all over the country and, and all over the world, frankly, were buying a lot of music just based on the fact that it was from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that's true, actually. And uh, one of the things I wanted to impress on people, too, is, uh, I mean, you know, I'm from the East Coast, and uh, I, I only yeah. lived in Washington for like a year. And, um, you know, then I, I went moved back east. And people were, were referring to this style of music as grunge. And right. what I want to mm-hmm. put out there is that the people making this music didn't necessarily refer to it as that. That's some kind of like uh, nomenclature that got assigned to it by maybe people who write for magazines or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, su- supposedly there's there's a lot of urban legend about how that first came to be. I, <clears throat> I think probably the first, the, the most agreed upon first usage of that referring to Seattle Rock was probably in some interview that Mark Arm of, of then Green River, but later Mudhoney, did with somebody where I think he, he might have referred to it as, as grunge, very, very much tongue-in-cheek, because if you know Mark, he's, he's very tongue-in-cheek, and it kind of stuck, you know, and, and you know, that's kind of the nature of, of, you know, any kind of mass media or mainstream media is when something gets big, they, they need to sort of fit it neatly in some little box, um, and I, and I've always, you know, I've always kind of hated the word, but, but I accept it because when you talk grunge, people know what you're talking about, you know, but I always talk about like, okay, well, you know, what, what does, what does Mudhoney, Alice in Chains, Tad and Nirvana have to do with each other? Because stylistically they're all incredibly different bands, yeah, definitely. Fires, you know, like they're completely different, you know, Nirvana is largely kind of this hard, dirty, but they're, they're a pop band. You know, they ultimately write hooky, heavy pop songs, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, Mudhoney has roots kind of more in kind of a garage aesthetic. You know, Alice in Chains is Alice in Chains. I mean, yeah, they're, I guess, you know, a metal band, but they have such a distinctive sound. And then, you know, Tad is just this heavy, crushing band. And, and you know, they all played together because aesthetically they, they made sense together, but but they, I always resented the fact that there was this word that was supposed to sort of be this blanket term for all of these bands that were ultimately very, very singular and very different in kind of what they were doing. You know, they just, they have this aesthetic um, of, you know, heavy, hard guitar rock. Um, and it wasn't slick. Uh, but you could also, you know, you could also argue that it was not that different from let's say the Minneapolis scene where you had Soul Asylum and the replacements and Babes in Toyland and Husker Du, you know, similarly kind of the same heavy guitar rock, some kind of hook element in there, you know, flannel as well. Guess what? Why? Because, well, because it's cold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Flannel was never really a fashion statement. It was never an intended thing. It was just, you know, it was what people wear in cold climates. And, you know, maybe with, with like, uh, you know, long johns under your jeans because, oh, again, for the same reason, because it's cold. Um, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Before we go on, I want to just for a little bit of exposition here. Talk about the importance of Green River and the U-Men. And the U-Men are this uh-huh. mysterious band that you, you see the name. You, you'll you watch like a, a documentary about the, the Northwest scene and you, their name will be on a flyer and you'll hear about other bands refer to them. And to a certain extent, Green River is the same type of band too. To a certain extent, I, I think I think you men are a little more legendary, um, if for no other reason, because because Green River will actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, Green River has always been. I mean, the interesting thing to me about Green River is that from Green River sprang forth what we now know as Mud Honey and Pearl Jam, two very very different kinds of bands, right? Yeah. Um, 
But it was interesting because in Green River, you had, you know, you had Stone and Jeff Ament on the one side being the Pearl Jam side. And then, and then you had, you know, Steve Turner and Mark Arm from Mudhoney were there too. And it, it was, it was this amalgamation of these kind of different aesthetic, uh, we'll call them preferences. Um, you know, off, often in the early days, especially when trying to, to describe this thing called grunge, people would say it was kind of this weird amalgam between like the Stooges and Aerosmith, you know, this dirty Detroit rock, far more punk based, and then this kind of arena rock. Um, and, and I've always thought that that was actually pretty accurate from an aesthetic standpoint, that it was kind of this combination of the two. So, you know, Green River, Green River was effectively, in my mind, really, really the first band in that whole scene that was kind of where the whole thing sort of started. And when I say sort of started, I mean where there was that there's something different happening here. There's something different from what's been going on. You know, Deep Six is kind of the record that chronicles the beginning of that whole scene. But in my mind, Green River was kind of the band that was kind of ground zero for that. <clears throat> now, you men were kind of a different animal. You men were around a lot longer. Uh, they, they were kind of the elder statement, statesmen of the, of the Seattle underground. Um, I, think, I think they first started in like 80 or 81, I want to say. I could be wrong. Um, but they were coming from kind of more of a, of a swampy kind of cramp sort of vibe, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was no band, anything like you men really before or since. Um, and anybody that was in that scene in those days, in the early 80s, the two bands I'll probably talk about are U-Men and another band called the Blackouts. Um, but U-Men were around a hell of a lot longer, um, released more stuff, were a lot more just wild and cacophonous, and you never quite knew what was going to happen. You know, with U-Men, there was always this, this edge of almost call it danger. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, John Bigley, their front man, was... You know, you want to talk about a, a, a force of nature, man. He was just, I, I can't even describe what it was like, but it was just like, whoa, what's what's John going to do this time? Um, and they did, they just always had this, this incredible swing and this incredible drive. And they were kind of, the U-Men were kind of the coolest kids that anybody knew in Seattle. And they maintained that kind of their entire career. Now, Jim Tillman, their primary bass player through most of their career, ended up later in uh, Love Battery. Um, Tom Price, the guitar player in the band, uh, ended up doing Gas Huffer, and now he now he has a, a band called um, the Tom Price Desert Classic. Um, for half a minute, uh, John Bigley and uh, a couple of those guys went off to do this band that was on Amphetamine Reptile called The Crows. Yeah. But but John Bigley and, and Tom Tom Ryan basically um, uh, they pretty much stopped really doing much of anything after human and it's interesting because I, I to this day I, I don't understand it but they they don't 
none of them seem to really actually even want to talk. I, I think I said Tom Ryan. I, that was wrong. It's, it's Charlie Ryan. Charlie Ryan was their drummer. Uh, but, but Charlie doesn't like talking about the band. John Bigley doesn't like talking about the band. Tom Price doesn't really like talking about the band. And nobody's ever really known why. Hmm. Um, so that puts them much more in this kind of, you know, they seem much more mysterious as a result. Um, but I, I have to give props where props are due. Uh, I think maybe now is actually 2018 that Sub Pop released this really lovingly assembled compilation of everything you men have ever done. Oh, that wow. I didn't even know that. that. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Wow. So, if your fans want to check up on the U-Man, there is a two-disc or two-record set. Actually, I think the record, I think the vinyl is even more than two records. I want to say it's three. But the CD, I believe the CD's two. Anyway, when Jack and Dino, because Jack and Dino, of course, was the guy who remastered it all and actually remixed a lot of it. When he was first pulling together all the masters uh, to try to put this all together, they found a whole bunch of tapes uh, of, of material that, that the band had no recollection of having even recorded. So what's so cool about this collection is that there's a whole bunch of stuff that nobody had ever heard before this came out, other than live. Uh, and so now pretty much everything they ever released and then a whole bunch of extra stuff as well can, uh, is available on this one collection. That also includes the song that was on Deep Six as well. Wow. You, uh, you just kind of made my day, actually, because um, I, I have a very spotty collection of their music. Uh, you know, like the records were hard to come by, for me at least. And, uh, but, oh, there? Yeah. You know, and like you said, they're mysterious guys. Like, you don't know much about them. And, uh, yeah. you know, for all I can say sonically is like I always felt, and it makes sense based on what you told me, that their sound reminded me more of like those early amphetamine reptile uh releases uh you know like halo of flies and you mentioned the crows and you know some of the members went on to more uh, you know there's a, a connection between the crows and uh and um you men so yeah there there's a lot of i feel like a lot of the, what they sound like there are bands on the early amrep catalog that had that sort of same like vibe to it you know yeah and actually there's more of a connection so so amrep did release uh, I know they released at least one human song. I think yeah. on one of the uh, on one of the uh, the dope the, guns uh, and fucking records. Yeah, but also for for like half a minute, uh, at one point in time, they needed a, a fill in bass player, and Tom Hazelmeyer filled in for I think a couple few months as the bass player. Just got to do a quick uh, aside here um, for those of you guys out there who have no idea what the fuck we're talking about. Um, amphetamine <laughs> reptile records. Uh, some of the bands that you might be familiar with are Helmet, obviously, um, Unsane, uh, maybe The Cows. Like those are bands that are um, were were big, uh, you know, big amphetamine reptile names. The Melvins, you know, that Mel kind of Mel stuff. That's a lot of stuff, yeah. And um, and but but aside from all of that, they have a whole catalog of great music that came out with bands that you may or may not have heard of, and that's what we're getting into right now. They put out a ton of stuff. I mean, they put out stuff by Jesus Lizard. Um, I, I want to say they put something out by Tad. Um, oh, today is the day, actually. Um, oh, actually, 
Actually, yeah. there's, I have another connection to amphetamine reptile myself. Yeah. Okay. Why, why is this not coming to mind? So <laughs> I, I actually, uh, one, one of the bands that was on amphetamine reptile was Helios Creed. Yes. Who had come previously from this band called Chrome. Uh, but he has a, a whole shit ton of, of uh, solo records under the name Helios Creed. And his, he came out with his very, very first one on Amphetamine Reptile was uh, called The Last Laugh from 1989. Um, I think he came out, I want to say, four titles on, on AMRAP. Anyway, that was the very first one. Um, and actually, uh, I am the bass player on that record. Um, and in fact, wrote most of the material. And it was just a straight three piece with Helios, me, and um, early skinny art drummer uh, Jason Finn, who uh, later would would come to more fame playing in Love Battery, and then eventually becoming a a very wealthy and well known musician playing in Presidents of the United States of oh, America. Wow. <laughs> but. The three of us, I basically got together with Helios and we started jamming and uh, <clears throat> we we actually did this whole record for AMREP uh, in the studio and over the course literally of two days, we wrote, rehearsed and recorded the entire thing. Um, and to this day, I still think it's a great record. It's it's a lot of fun. That That's uh, so, not a lot of time to do something like that for sure. No, and that was that was just, but that was kind of you know, at that point in my life, and I think for a lot of people, there was so much creative juice flowing that we were just we were just in this really creatively fertile time and just doing stuff and writing and you know we just went in the studio we had we we had a couple of riffs that we had kind of played around with but we didn't actually have songs yet and so we just kind of went in it was it was you know Helios and Jason and me and Jack was at the helm um recording and we just we just did it you know it was great at what point did you end up working for sub pop because i know you had a tenure with them too you had a period of time i worked for them i worked with them for two and a half years i believe <clears throat> i'd have to look at the exact time i want to say <clears throat> i think it was 87 through the end of 1990 um so very early on, when I first started working, when I first started working with Sub Pop, uh, it was Bruce and John and me. It was just the three of us. And by the time I left, there was like 14 people on staff. Um, and I'd, I'd been friends with, with Jonathan already. <clears throat> he was a fan of Skin Yard. And he had actually booked us a number of times because he was working with the local radio station at that time, KCMU. <clears throat> and I had, was working at this uh, print shop. I was working for this crazy uh, Korean guy who was was a screamer, and I don't I don't deal well with screamers in the workplace. And one day, I just had enough, and it's the only time I've ever done this. But I basically just said, "Fuck this shit! I don't need to stay here." And I I quit on the spot, middle of the day, and like I'm done. See you, bye. Got in my car and was driving home. No clue what the fuck I was going to be doing next in life. And as I'm driving home, I'm like, oh, there's Jonathan at the bus stop. So I pulled over and off him a ride home. And we're just talking. And he goes, yeah, you know, we're, uh, you might know, you might know somebody. Um, we're, we're looking for a salesperson because Charles Peterson had done it for a month or two, but just really wasn't 
wasn't Charles's forte as a salesperson. And Jonathan's like, you have any ideas of anybody that might, you know, be good for this? I'm like, yeah, matter of fact, I do. And he goes, oh, really? Who? And I said, me. <laughs> and he said, really? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, when can you start? How's Monday? I'm like, do it. Let's do it. So I had a long weekend and started that Monday and built their their whole distribution and what later became kind of the mainstay of of their financial fluidity for those early years, which was the uh, direct to retail portion of their business, where I basically established accounts with indie retailers all over the country, uh, and we would sell direct to stores COD. And the only way to really make that work was to, you know, there wasn't enough stuff coming out on Subbop yet to warrant regular monthly orders. So I started bringing a lot of stuff from overseas and from other independent labels and created a whole sort of distribution arm so that there was always enough for stores to, to warrant making, you know, making a direct uh, purchase. And, and it actually worked out great because half the time, especially when the label really started to blow up, Half the time, stores would order stuff through Caroline, who was our distributor, and we'd get really shitty fills. They'd order like 20 copies of something and get three. And so more and more, they could rely on Subpop being a reliable source of getting Subpop when they were when it was, you know, hot commodity. Um, so yeah, I was there for, I'd say, two and a half years. Um, actually came back from Skinyard Tour. And my second day back, they let me go in the middle of the day. And I was like, what is going on? And um, <clears throat> I think basically Bruce had felt, hey, well, it's in the book and, and he has a different take on it. But I remember it quite vividly that, uh, that he, he was kind of threatened by a couple of things. One was the fact that I was effectively running CZ out of Sub Pop. And I was, you know, he, he felt like I was maybe conflicted. Um, whereas actually I was very, I had a lot of integrity around that and a lot of, um, awareness that that could be seen as a conflict. So I would come in early and do CZ work and then, and then I would punch into the clock. So we had a time clock and then I would do CZ work or, or sub pop work. Um, or I would kind of do sub pop work and then at like four o'clock I would punch out and then I would spend a couple hours doing CZ stuff. So I was very clear about where those delineations were. Uh, but the other thing that happened, which I think maybe was a bigger part of it, was that Kiss Covers compilation that I did. Right. Um, originally, the license came from Waterfront Records in Australia, and I was dealing with them a lot because we were moving a lot of their product through Sub Pop, through distribution. And they were putting this record out, and they were looking for a, a U.S. licensee. And um, they said, hey, do you think Sub Pop might be interested? And I said, I think that would be really cool. And I went to John and Bruce and they're like, no, nah, we're not interested. And so I told them, I said, you know, they're not interested. And they said, well, what about CZ? And I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. Uh. So I, their record was a, a two record set. I put it out as a one record set because uh, I thought there was a lot of filler. And then I got a couple of bands I was the one who actually got the Nirvana track that was on there, which is also on the Australian one. But for instance, I got a, a Melvin's track for mine that I didn't that I did not give to Waterfront in Australia. So I had a couple of tracks that were on the on the American CZ version only, um, and that record came out on the very very same day that the first Afghan Wigs record came out. 
And I was a huge Afghan Whigs fan. Yeah. I still am. I yeah, think they're great. great I love them. Um, but the, I don't know if you remember the album cover of that very first record. It's called uh, Up In It on yeah. Sub Pop. There's a hand on it, I think. A hand with a stitch on it. And I'm yeah. like, this is a terrible cover. It's totally nondescript. And it was a hard sell. It just didn't, it didn't make people want to buy it. And um, so what was happening is, is initial sales on Afghan Whigs was, was shit. And I was pushing the hell out of it. But meanwhile, people were buying the Kiss Covers comp hand over fist. And um, I, I think Bruce was convinced that I was basically upselling that and pushing it at the expense of Afghan Whigs. And I'm like, dude, I'm not pushing Kiss at all because I don't have to. And I'm pushing the hell out of Afghan Whigs because I really believe in this band. And uh, I think those two things together, they're just like, well, you know, we need somebody 110%. And I'm like, well, you got me 98%, you know, but, but the good, the good thing about that was actually that, I mean, I was really angry and really bitter for actually a number of years because I thought it was completely unwarranted. Um, but that experience of being let go from sub pop was, was what also, what pushed me into saying, all right, maybe it's time to try doing CZ as something more than just a hobby. Maybe I need to actually see if I can turn this into a full-on label and actually have it be, um, you know, the source of my livelihood. And so I went for it. And at our peak, we had like a dozen employees and we're a full-service indie record label. And, um, you know, for eight, eight and a half years of my life, it's all I did. And it was how I made a, a living, you know, albeit a, a pretty, a pretty feeble living. But, you know, I, I used to joke that bands that were on the label made more than their president, which was probably true. But, you know, I got to do that and I got to put out a lot of great records by a lot of great bands. And I, I have no I have no qualms about that being part of my history at all. Now, a lot of this stuff is going to be in the book, too. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of I don't know what all is going to be in the book until it's all in the book. Um, I'm, I'm in the process now of, of doing a lot of editorial with the uh, raw um, the raw transcriptions because they need a lot of work and whittling down and cleaning up. And, you know, so. Once I start kind of chunking pieces out from the different interviews and kind of putting them into a timeline, we'll see. We'll see what narrative fully comes out. You know, I don't I don't know that, that little story I just told you. Yes, that will be in the book. Cool. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, there's it's going to be it's going to be an interesting book, you know. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, um, I think like these days, it seems like a lot of uh, books are coming out on stuff that's fairly obscure and people seem to be, you know, taking to it. I think it's like, uh, you know, kind of riding a wave of, of music related books these days. I, I remain fascinated by how much interest there still is in the Seattle scene from back then because it was so long ago. Although, to be fair, in my mind, it ended when Skinyard ended. No, it ended when I left Skinyard. <laughs> I, I kind of forget that the Seattle grunge scene went for a number of years past 1991. Uh, but, you know, it is still fascinating to me. All these bands and all this history that's like, you know, literally 25 years old is still has a really, really rabid and, and loyal following. You know, like 
a lot of the skin yard fans are these pretty young kids. They're in their twenties. And I'm just shocked at how much they all know, like they're sponges. They absorb all of it and they're into all of these bands. And uh, I, I think it's great. I think it's amazing. I, I, I don't know if that's because so much of that music is in fact that good. Um, that it just has the staying power, you know, or if it's, um, or if it's the legend of all of it, or, you know, maybe it's both. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. I imagine it's both too. And also, I mean, uh, the bands that came out of that era too, I mean, are, are mainstays, you know, in, yeah. in our culture. So it makes sense that people would look back on that period and those, that, you know, particular region for, you know, in reverence, you know, and, and also yeah. the periphery is also more in focus than in some other places. And, and most of it to me doesn't really sound dated anymore, you know, like, or, or, at, or I shouldn't say anymore. Most of that material doesn't sound dated 25, 30 years later, um, which I find interesting. Like to me, Soundgarden still sounds as fresh now as it did then, you know, um, Green River doesn't sound particularly dated, you know, Nirvana, Nirvana, I've heard so much that I kind of don't need to hear Nirvana anymore, but I can still listen to it objectively and go, this is really good shit. Whereas if you listen to a lot of the metal that say came out in the eighties, kind of before all that, a lot of that sounds really, really dated. Even if it's still good, it still sounds dated. You yeah, know? definitely. Like, I mean, like, it's a nostalgia thing almost that people listen to as a result of yeah. it. Like I was listening this morning and I was listening this morning to, to Judas Priest breaking the law because apparently today, uh, 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 April 14th, I guess is the 40 year anniversary of when that record came out. Yeah. I think I saw something about that and online. Yeah. I'm kind of listening to it going, yeah, it's a great song. Wow. It really sounds dated though, doesn't it? <laughs> and a lot of those bands back then, you know, they reached that point where suddenly they sound very much of their time. And I feel like a lot of the bands from that whole Seattle scene still kind of managed to remain sounding timeless. And I'm not, I'm not sure if it's something in the water or what, you know, even the U-Men still have this kind of timeless quality to it, to me. Well, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. And uh, we're all looking forward to this book, man, and definitely yeah. stay in touch with, uh, with when that's going to be released. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio weekly podcast. Tune in next week and see what we have in store for you. The show is available on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, etc. Also, be sure to check out Gimme Radio, streaming on the web, iOS, or Android. For one of the best metal communities, exclusive merch, interviews with artists, and so much more. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care. Nothing.